Well, please take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Today, as we continue our series through Luke's Gospel, we will be closing out, Lord willing, uh, the 8th chapter, beginning our reading in, in verse 40 of chapter 8, reading to the end of the chapter, verse 56. It's on page 866 of our cart Bibles, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40, and reading through to the end of verse 56, where we see Christ again following this series of, of miracles that Luke has been presenting to us, uh, showing us the power and the glory of Christ incarnate. Uh, as we come, and before we read this word, please join me again in prayer as we seek the Lord's blessing upon our study together today. Let's pray. O Lord, long ago you sent a prophet uh, to speak and told him that people would not hear and they would not see, lest they should turn and be saved. O Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, and we pray that by your spirit you would allow us to see and to hear and to turn. Give us the grace of an understanding of what you're doing what you have done through Jesus Christ, what you continue to do and what you will do in the future for those who have faith in him. Help us above all to see Christ our Savior in these words and to love him and to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, and they're came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. When the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. When he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. I wonder, 
I wonder if uh, you have ever considered just how hard it is to accept the picture of Jesus that the Gospels give to us. I mean, when you read stories like this, when you read stories of Jesus healing this hemorrhaging woman and raising this girl from the dead, I wonder if you stop and consider just how difficult it is for the average American to believe that these things actually happen the way that they're told to us. 1935, J. Gresham Machen said, if the Gospels contained no miracles, they would be easier to believe than they are now. Even skeptics would have no difficulty in believing. Defenders of the faith would have an easy victory. Everyone would believe. But then there would be one drawback. It would be this. The thing that everybody would believe would not be worth believing. We find that it's true. In our age, we find it difficult to speak to neighbors of things like sin and and redemption, and at least partly because our neighbors refuse to believe in things like a man being able to walk on the water and a few loaves feeding a few thousand. It seems that very often the miracles of Jesus are the greatest barriers keeping people from believing in Jesus, and that's not something new. That's been happening for centuries, but it's strange the way that that is almost exactly opposite of what Jesus said the miracles were supposed to be about from the get-go. John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, and he tells them, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. That is, the works that Jesus was doing, the miracles that he was working in the sight of all these people were not supposed to be barriers to the faith. They are supposed to be entry points. Entry points not just to believe in the miracles, but to believe in something or someone else greater than the miracles. These miracles were meant to, to witness beyond themselves. And so the stilling of the storm is about more than, more than saving a few sailors. And feeding the multitudes is about more than filling bellies. And healing a woman and raising a girl is about more than health and wholeness. Remember that John sent his messengers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we keep on waiting? Should we just look for somebody else? And you remember the way that Jesus answered him. Luke chapter 7, go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus was saying to John, believe on account of the works themselves. Because they were meant to point beyond themselves, beyond just the miracles. Over the last several weeks, we've been walking through this section of Luke where, where Jesus' miracles are in the spotlight. We've seen that Jesus has power over creation, that he can still the wind and the waves with the word. We've seen that he has power over the spiritual world, that he can drive out a legion of demons, that he commands the spiritual forces. We see here today that Jesus is able to restore to health and to raise from the dead. But what is the point of all the miracles of these accounts that we've seen? Well, the point is to convince us that Jesus is worth believing in, that he really came 
in flesh and blood and time and space that he is the one who is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him and through faith in him. That's what this passage is about. It's about believing in Jesus. And so the application right at the beginning comes to you the same way that it came to Jairus in verse 50. Jesus said, do not fear, only believe. That's the point. The point of all these miracles is to make us believe in Jesus. Despite all those doubts that we're tempted to raise, despite the obstacles of reading these things and, and thinking somewhere in the back of our minds, really? The point is to make you believe in Jesus and to draw you into faith. That's what this passage is about. It's about faith in Jesus. It doesn't start with faith in Jesus, though. It starts with desperation. And Jesus returns from, from driving out demons, and he's met by this crowd of admirers. He's gone from Gerasa on the other side with the Gentiles back to his own people, the Jews, back in Capernaum. And the people in Capernaum are just as glad to have him back as the people on the other side of the lake were glad to see him go. They drove him away, and he comes back, and here's this stereotypical crowd of admirers ready to welcome Jesus as he comes. And in that welcoming crowd, Jesus met two desperate people. First, he met Jairus. Scripture tells us that he was a ruler of the local synagogue. That means that he had respectability. He had status. He had clout. He, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't the one who would do the teaching and the preaching, but as a ruler of the synagogue, uh, he was something like an elder of a church and a town selectman all rolled together into one. Uh, he was in charge of arranging the services week to week. He was the one who would decide when the visiting rabbis would come, who would speak, uh, and because almost every facet of Jewish life passed through the synagogue at some level, uh, Jairus was a man who had access and influence in the entire community. He was a man who was respected. He was a man of position and authority. And quite frankly, respectability and authority don't matter much when your child is sick. Those things don't matter when you don't know what to do and the doctors don't know what to do and you can only sit there and count the breaths and wonder which one might be the last. And Jairus was desperate because his daughter was sick on the point of death, we're told. And she was the only child in the family, the only begotten, monogenes, same word that's applied to Jesus elsewhere, the only begotten in the family, the only daughter, just 12 years old. She was on the cusp in Jewish society of adulthood. Up until the age of 11, uh, they were uh, termed girls. From uh, about 12 to 12 and a half, uh, young women were termed maidens. And then from 12 and a half, they were termed virgins to let you know that in about a year, they'd be married off to some other respectable young gentleman in Capernaum, and they would go off and, and have their own life together. And and Jairus was right there on the cusp of watching his daughter become a mother, and maybe she would go off and she would have her own family, and he would get to bounce grandchildren on his knees, and it's all right there before him, but now she is on her deathbed. His daughter was dying, and Jairus was desperate, and so he came, we're told, and fell at Jesus' feet. This respectable man fell at Jesus' feet and implored him to come to his house. Oh, Jesus went, of course. It's typical, isn't it? Jesus went, and as he went, he met another desperate person. 
Verse 43 tells us there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now consider this woman. Her experience of life and of community could not possibly have been more different than Jairus' experience of life and community in Jewish world. She was suffering from a distinctly feminine problem. She had probably a uterine discharge that simply would not stop. For 12 years, she was bleeding. This is not a normal thing, and she is sick. And because of her sickness, she's also an outcast. Leviticus 15 tells us she is ceremonially unclean all the days of her bleeding for 12 years. That meant that anyone or anything she touched would also become unclean. In fact, anyone who touched anything that she had touched would become unclean. She was a pariah. Persona non grata. She had nothing to do with society. And so while Jairus was setting up the services in the synagogue, she couldn't even enter. She was cut off from worship. She was cut off from society. She was cut off from human contact of any kind. The rabbis taught that the husband of such a woman at this time was, uh, was liable to, to sue out and, and seek a divorce, and that would be okay, and they would grant one, they would say. That's not the kind of, of woman that a man should have to have for a wife. And so we don't know if she was married or had ever been married, but we do know that there's nobody advocating for her here in this passage. There's, there's nobody on her behalf coming and falling at Jesus' feet and imploring Jesus, please come to my house and heal Heal my friend, heal my wife, heal my sister. Nobody advocating for her. She is all alone. And she's sick and she's unclean and she's also destitute. We're told that she had spent all of her living on physicians. And still she couldn't be healed by anybody. She only got worse, Mark tells us. She had suffered much at the hand of many physicians and did not improve but rather got worse. That's the way Mark puts it. And she was a desperate woman. And in their desperation, both of these people came to Jesus. They'd heard about him. Certainly Jairus had heard about him. He had been uh, preaching, I'm sure, in the synagogue. And, and Jairus had been there when he saw Jesus preaching and heard Jesus preaching. We don't know what else they had heard about Jesus. We don't know what they, uh, they knew about him or, or how much of his reputation preceded him, but they had heard at least that Jesus was the kind of person that could do what nobody else could do. He's the kind of person that can help you when you're in a desperate situation, when nobody else can give you any help. Jesus might be able to do something. Who knows what they believed about Jesus? Who knows what they believed about the Messiah? Who knows whether they were devout Jews or whether they were compromisers, and maybe those things didn't even matter much at that time because they were desperate. But in their desperation, they began to connect their need with what they had heard about Jesus' ability. And that's the beginning of faith. Not, not faith that can move mountains, but faith the size of a mustard seed. It begins when we recognize our desperate need and we begin to connect that need with what we've heard about Jesus' ability, maybe even in shadows, maybe even in small ways, just the first flicker of hope, maybe just a hunch, maybe just a glimmer, but they came with that spark of faith, seeking what the Lord might do for them. And they came as desperate people. Kent Hughes says that desperation is often the prelude to grace. I find that to be true. 
Often the Lord uses our desperation to draw us to Jesus, that he uses desperate times to draw people to Jesus who would never come to him otherwise. Later in Luke's gospel, Jesus said, uh, chapter 18, verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he didn't say that because riches are incompatible with religion. He said that because riches have, uh, tend to have a kind of numbing effect. Riches and status and opportunity and success and all these things that anesthetize us to our human condition that, that temporarily make us forget our mortality. And when we have no idea how desperate things can become, we, we often feel no need for Jesus. But then that sickness falls that no one can heal. Then that relationship ends that, quite frankly, if you could go back in time, you would give up all the promotions you were seeking, all the, the accolades that you got while you were avoiding that relationship. You'd give them all up just to have it back, and things get desperate, and finally you realize your need. Maybe at some point you make a mistake that unravels in your hands and try as you might, you cannot put your life back together again. And under the microscope of desperation, suddenly you begin to reevaluate everything. Not just that individual situation, but everything. What is, what is life? What are you doing here? What's it all about? What is good? What lasts? What should you follow? What should you seek? You reevaluate everything under desperation. And maybe it's just a hunch. Maybe, maybe it's a spark of hope, but you've heard that Jesus has the answer to those questions. You've heard that Jesus is the answer to those questions. Christians can get desperate too, folks. Sometimes it has to do with our complacency. Sometimes, like Peter, we take our eyes off Christ and, and pay attention to what's going on around us. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes situations just come upon us that remind us, like the disciples in the boat with Jesus a few passages earlier, that our security is really not in our hands, uh, even though we may think that it is. And Christians can get desperate too. And we realize our problems are more than we can handle with hard work and good hygiene. Why did the Gentiles drive Jesus away on the other side of the lake? Why did they tell him to leave, to get as far away as he could possibly get from them and as far away as they could possibly get from him? Why did they drive him away? Instead of saying, oh, please stay with us, like the man who had been delivered said. Why was it that when Jesus came back across the other side to Capernaum where people knew him, they welcomed him instead of worshiping him? They were excited. Here's the one who does many wonderful things, and he's come, and he'll be here, and they were, they were happy. Why are there so many? Why are there so many, even in the church, who are content to keep the gospel at a safe arm's distance, rather than to admit their need and their inability to stand on the last day before the judgment seat of God, before a God who is utterly holy, 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 why are there so many who say, no, 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 I've heard it, but I, that's not for me yet. Well, maybe they do that because they haven't tasted desperation yet. Maybe you haven't either. But you will. What a blessing that in many of those times, praise the Lord, God uses desperation to draw people to Jesus who would not otherwise come. 
It's a blessed thing because when desperate people come to Jesus in faith, what they find is salvation. They find salvation in Jesus. That's actually the buzzword. It's hidden here in this passage, but we'll see it in just a moment. We, we understand that when desperate people come to Jesus in faith, they find salvation. We see this working in the miracles that are before us. For one, we find that Jesus has the power to heal the sick. Verse 44, this is, this is really what we've come to expect of Jesus by this time. We've, we've waited through eight chapters of Luke already. This is what we know of him. This is what we come to expect, that Jesus goes and he does many wonderful things and he delivers many people from their ailments and he, and he helps them. It's why the crowds came to him on the shore. That's why Jairus sought out this man and came and, and, and went to him when his daughter was dying. It's why this unclean woman snuck through the crowd to get close to Jesus because verse 44 tells us that as she touched even the fringe, that's probably the tassel, that blue cord that all Jews were commanded to tie onto their garment as a reminder of the Lord and of his commandments for their lives, to walk in faithfulness with the Lord. As she came and she, she touched even the tassel on Jesus' garment, we're told that immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately, don't miss that word, immediately, 12 years she had been dealing with this. Every single day she had been dealing with this. She spent 12 years visiting every doctor and every rabbi she could find. She paid every doctor's bill she could until she couldn't pay them anymore and until nobody would see her anymore. And today we've got all sorts of options. We've got specialists in every biological category that you can imagine. And if those can't help you, maybe you can go and see your acupuncturist, or maybe you can go and see your aromatherapist, or maybe your psychotherapist, or maybe your massage therapist. Whoever it is, you can fill your days with all sorts of remedies. You can do this exercise. You can take this, this pill. You can do all of these things, and it's all promised to us. And you go maybe from one to another seeking a cure. She had done this. She had done it all. She had tried everything she could find, alternative medicine in all of its quackery. And if you read some of the, the proposed cures for what this woman was dealing with in the first century, they are ridiculous. Take a pint of onions and boil them in wine and have, have the woman drink the wine and then hold the cup in her right hand and have someone say to her, arise from your flux. And if that doesn't work, you take her and you put her at a place where two roads separate and you have her hold that cup of wine in her right hand and have somebody that she knows come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from your flux. This is legitimately what the Talmud said to do for a woman who had an hemorrhage that could not stop. She had tried it all. Twelve years and she couldn't be healed. She had suffered much, Mark tells us, at the hands of the physicians and did not get any better but only got worse and one touch of the fringe of Jesus' garment and she is immediately healed. Because Jesus has the power to heal the sick. And by this time, this is what we've come to expect from Jesus, isn't it? We do not expect verse 45. <laughs> Jesus said, who was it that touched me? We don't expect that. Truth be told, if the point of this passage were just to show us one more time that Jesus has the power to heal, we don't even need that. 
I'm not trying to, to excise scripture and, and, and get away with doing away with some of this. I'm not, I'm not pulling a Thomas Jefferson on this passage, but let's think about it. If all this is trying to tell us is that Jesus knows how to heal and he has the power to heal those who are sick, we can jump from verse 44 to verse 49 and never miss a beat. She came, she touched, she healed, he kept going. That's all we need to hear, but that's not the point. Jesus stopped. He stopped the crowd. He stopped the procession following him on the way to Jairus' house. He took time to single out this woman who thought she could come and receive a healing and slink away into obscurity. Jesus refuses to let this woman remain unknown. Notice she has to be pressed a little bit. It says that they were all denying it. That means she was denying it too when Jesus said, who touched me? And it's not until Jesus presses a little bit more in verse 47 tells us, it was when she saw that she was not hidden that she came forth and she told all her embarrassing story. Well, you know why she didn't want to. You can imagine the way that people would have looked at her. The way they would have despised her if they had only known that this unclean woman had been there in the midst of the people, spreading her contagion around half of Capernaum. Well, today, this would, this would be seen as, as hostile to this woman. Wouldn't it be better if Jesus just allowed her to disappear? Wouldn't that be better instead of, instead of dragging her before the masses and saying, well, let's hear what's going on in your life? But Jesus doesn't allow her to disappear. Because this woman needs to know, and you need to know, that not only does Jesus have the power to heal the sick, but he also has the power to cleanse those who are defiled. Verse 45 is, is where curious people begin to ask lots of interesting questions about this story. If we wanted to, we could go on a pretty long rabbit trail. I'm going to try not to today, but we could go on a pretty long rabbit trail and ask, well, well what does Jesus' question mean for our understanding of the incarnation? What does it mean for Jesus to have a, a real human mind and a real divine nature? And is it even possible that Jesus did not know who had touched him? And, and we also ask questions about, well, how is it possible that power could zap sort of from Jesus to somebody else, uh, and, and did he will it or did she take it, and how did that, and we're, we're not. We're not going to go down those roads today because that's not the point. All sorts of, of wonderful theological speculation that maybe you and a friend in a libation would like to discuss uh, these things, but we're not going uh, down that road today because it's not the point. The point is that Jesus did not allow this woman to get away only with a physical healing. The healing's already done, folks. But he pressed further. He does not allow her to get away with only a physical healing, nor did he allow her to get away thinking superstitious thoughts. Maybe that blue tassel that hung on Jesus' cloak was somehow more magical than the blue tassel that hung on every other Jewish cloak that I've ever seen. We've seen those televangelists that tell their viewers that for a donation of $49.95 or more, they will send you a prayer handkerchief, one that they have blessed, one that you can put upon your loved ones when you pray for a miraculous healing for them. And Jesus is making sure that this poor woman doesn't go away thinking that Jesus is a miracle worker with a few fun tricks up his sleeve. He wants her to know that he has power beyond her healing. The healing is done, the blood is stopped, her body is whole, and yet Jesus stops the crowd. 
He calls her out. And she comes like Jairus and falls at his feet, trembling. And then she tells in the hearing of all the people her entire embarrassing story and what she's been through and how instantly she was healed. And all of it, the delay, the public acknowledgement, all of it was to get to the declaration that Jesus makes in the hearing of the crowd. Verse 48, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This is the second healing in this passage. For 12 years, this woman has dealt with illness and isolation. And now every eye was on this trembling woman at Jesus' feet, and every person knew the infection in their midst, and every ear heard Jesus declare this woman restored, clean, and at peace. Actually, we've heard this phrase before, you remember. Except for that first word, daughter, which this is the only woman in all the scriptures that Jesus calls daughter, by the way. This compassion for the woman who is the outcast. Except for that word, daughter, it is the exact same phrase that Jesus spoke to the sinful woman who wept over his feet back in chapter 7. And that means that it's a curious sort of choice for most of our English translations to render it differently here because most of our translations say something like the ESV, uh, daughter, your faith has made you well. Actually, the word is saved. Sozo. You have been saved by your faith, he says to her. Just as faith saved the woman who needed forgiveness in chapter 7, so faith has saved the woman who needed cleansing here in chapter 8. It wasn't the touch of Jesus' garment. It was Jesus. It was faith in the Savior who has the power to heal the sick and to cleanse the defiled. You see, when desperate people come to Jesus in faith, they find salvation. Jairus was about to learn that same thing. Not only does Jesus have the power to heal the sick and to cleanse the defiled, Jesus also has power to raise the dead. It's hard to imagine what might have been going through Jairus' mind as Jesus waited with this woman. He took the time to minister to her. But verse 49 tells us, while Jesus was still speaking, word came that it was too late. Don't trouble the teacher, said the messenger. There's no reason to have him come to the house. We've heard this phrase too, actually. Except the first time this phrase was was full of faith on the lips of a centurion who said, Lord, I I believe you're so powerful, you don't even have to come to my house. You don't have to see my servant. You don't have to touch the patient. You can just say a word, and at your command, he'll be healed and restored. The last time we heard this, don't trouble the teacher to come under my roof. It was full of faith, and now it's completely faithless. Don't trouble the teacher because there's nothing anybody can do. She's died. Jesus is too late. No need to take another step. And that's when you realize that Jesus didn't stop the crowd just to minister to the woman. He stopped the crowd to minister to Jairus, too. Kind of like in John chapter 11, when it tells us that Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, so he stayed three more days. So he stayed three more days. 
You see, Jesus wants Jairus to know something about Jesus that Jairus would never have known if Jesus showed up on Jairus' timetable. In verse 50, Jesus calls Jairus to faith. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Actually, it's that same word again. Sozo. Don't fear, only believe, your daughter will be saved. Believe the unbelievable, Jesus is telling him. Even though your daughter is dead, and, and yes, actually she was dead. She was so dead that when Jesus showed up at his house and he began to speak of death from a divine perspective, as though death were only a sleep that, that vanishes with the rising of the sun, S-O-N. When he begins to speak of, of death the way that the New Testament speaks of death for the believer, that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When Jesus begins to speak of death from the divine perspective, they laugh him to scorn. That's what the King James says, so Shakespearean. They, they laugh him to scorn. Because they knew she was dead, and actually so did Luke the physician. She was dead. And Jesus tells Jairus, even though death has come to your home, you can believe that Jesus is the Savior who can do the impossible. He's the one with the power to raise the dead. And he did. He did it quietly. He did it secretly. He took the scoffers and he put them out and he did it probably as gently as Jairus himself would have raised his daughter from sleep time after time for 12 years. He took her by the hand and he said, my child, arise, get up. And just as quickly as the woman had been healed, so the text tells us that her spirit returned. Returned from where? Returned from whom? Returned from the one who had given it in the first place, the one who was keeping it and holding it while her body grew cold and gray. It returned, her spirit returned, and she got up. And Jairus and his wife learned that Jesus has the power to raise the dead. They learned that when desperate people come to Jesus in faith, they find salvation. And the point of all these miracles is to teach you the same lesson. I think that's why Jesus used that weighty word, saved. Why didn't, why didn't he use a different word? The, the entire human lexicon was at his disposal. The maker of heaven and earth could have said anything. He could have used much more precise language to speak exactly to their immediate circumstances. Uh, Jairus, do not fear, but believe, and your daughter will be resuscitated, revitalized. Daughter, your faith has alleviated your symptoms. That's not what he says. He uses a word that speaks beyond the immediate condition of those desperate people. Because he was using a word that speaks to the need of every desperate person living in a world that sometimes reminds us just how desperate things can get. He spoke a word that holds out promise. Even if your daughter isn't dying, even if your whole life doesn't hinge on finding a cure for the illness that has gripped you for more than a decade. Jesus was speaking a word that, that speaks to fundamental, universal human need. He was speaking of salvation through faith. So that all of us, living centuries after Jairus' daughter was resuscitated and lived and died again, so that we all could know that he speaks that same word to us, do not fear, only believe, and you will be saved.
Folks, wouldn't it be a shame? Wouldn't it be a shame if these miracles were all that Jesus' ministry was about? Have you considered that? The Gospels record Jesus as having raised three people from the dead. There might have been others, but we know about three. We know about Lazarus. We know about the only begotten son of the widow at Nain. We know about the only begotten daughter of this man Jairus here. Now let's suppose that he had given this young girl another 70 years or so. Let's say she lived into her 80s. She had a family. She lived. She experienced all the joys of life and all the sorrows that you also experience. And then she died and that was it. Suppose for a second that this was all that Jesus came to do. Raise a few dead people. Heal a few hundred sick people. Fill a few thousand bellies. Open a few blind eyes. Suppose that that was all he came to do and then he was gone. Suppose the point was to convince you that once upon a time this happened, but you weren't there and now it's over. What then? Do you know the Apostle Paul entered into that worldview for a moment? He considered what that would mean if that was the point of these miracles. Paul played the game of what if. What if Jesus worked miracles only for a few? What if Jesus' power extended only to those uh, who needed to have their physical lives made better and happier and more vibrant? What if there's really nothing else to look forward to? What if the dead are not raised? 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 16, If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You hear that logic? If Jesus came only to work a few miracles that had something to do with way back then, and there's nothing else left to us, we are a sorry lot. It was all about believing that there was one isolated resuscitation. And we're lost. And again, if those miracles pointed to someone, to something, but someone greater than themselves, if those miracles were meant to show us who Jesus is and what he had come to do, if these Miracles present to us the Christ who was God incarnate, come to work salvation for all those who trust in him. If these miracles point to us the one who came to work full and free salvation from all our sin and release from eternal death, then that's someone we ought to believe in. Have you considered how, how perfect it is? This trio of miracles, if we understand this as, as three miracles that Jesus was working very intentionally in this passage, have you considered the perfect way that this trio of miracles shows us really what Jesus had come to do beyond just the healing of this woman and this girl? Now, I'm not saying that these are fabricated just for this. I'm saying with John that Jesus did many things, and if everything he did were written down, the world could not contain the books that would be written. And I'm saying that the gospel writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose these three to put together in a cluster and to say, look at what he's doing, and look at who he is. What does the scripture tell us about our sin? What makes us sick? Isaiah chapter 1. The picture of sinful Israel. 
The whole heart is faint. The whole heart is the the whole head is faint. The heart is sick from the top of the head to the soles of the foot. It's nothing but raw wounds and sores and bleeding ulcers. Sickness pervading the person. Scriptures tell us that our iniquities make us unclean. Isaiah 64, we all have become unclean. All our righteous acts are as filthy rags. And like the wind, our iniquities sweep us away. Paul tells us that our sin makes us dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins in which you once walked, according to the power of the prince of the air at work within us all, and we're by nature children of wrath. You see, this is meant to point us beyond the immediate circumstance of this woman and this girl to show us who Jesus is and what he had come to do because that's the primary miracle. It's the incarnation that brings salvation through faith. Paul said, what if? What if? What if? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says he's been raised as the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. There's promise in that. There's a promise that the Christ who came and raised the only daughter of a desperate man has himself been resurrected and gives a promise to all those who trust in him. Full salvation. Not temporary salvation. Not resuscitation. Freedom and forgiveness and life in Christ. And now he sends his children into the world where people scoff just like they did beside the bed of that girl. Where people laughed at Jesus and said, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, that can't happen. And they laughed at him and they scoffed him to scorn and they'll do the same to you. And they'll tell you that, you know what, your faith really is better off without all those miracle stories. It'd be much easier to believe, wouldn't it? Then it would look like all the other religions in the world where we're just teaching good behavior. And Jesus took those scoffers and he sent them out and he says, you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. That's what he says to you today. Believe. Do not fear, but believe. And you will be saved. Because salvation comes to those who trust in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that it's true. We thank you that you're the one who came, was incarnate, born of the virgin, born under the law to save those under the law. We thank you that you gave yourself and that laid over your life and no one took it from you. We thank you, O oh Lord, that you have proven your love for us and that you have given up your son for us. Oh, Lord, help us to believe. Help us to trust. Help us to walk with you all the days of our lives until we see you again and we are with you as you are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.